Thoughts in Time of Plague. When we set out, we knew many would die on the way, and yet the journey was joyous. When we made our home, we knew many would die there, and yet we loved that house. All the views from its windows we named beauty. When we went down the road, the light was different every mile. What could be behind those mute windows with sometimes appearing eye? What pleasure in those almost empty gardens? What unknown work in the factories, birds in the dense wood? When dawn came in our bedroom, or we woke too late in the old shattered kitchen amid food scraps, empty bottles, didn't our memory burn deeper? The same old scar flaming anew, shifting, unmoved. And when we were trembling by the sick that we loved and feared so many, was it different? Whether on the road with nowhere to lay them down or in the room with nowhere else to take them, when we had to watch the threatened breathing or leave it to go to work when we had to hear they had died without us. Was it different? No, no different, except that we saw something we always knew in the dark. Failure was not, and success had never been the end. The end was care. them realize we just can't go on in the same ways. We're killing ourselves. So, but you will also notice the more it gets clear, technology is wrong, poetry is right, the more desperately we go in the other direction. The more there is lip service to the kind of thing you're talking about, the more there is control. Well, you know, you say the poet is often looked at as the canary in the mind, right? Supposedly he's a sensitive plant. And you know, like in the 18th century, poets were going crazy. It meant there were stresses in society. We think that there, it's that sort of thing. But I, I would say to culture today, I, I'll tell you when we can see that it's getting healthy again and there might be some hope for the world. You can look at the young males when again, like in the beat era and earlier, more young males are interested in poetry than are interested in technology, then we will be going right in the right direction. Until then, we're just accelerating towards the brick wall. You know. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned poetry, you mentioned holism, and you mentioned crisis. And mm -hmm. at a time like this, all of this is intersecting. You know, I've definitely recognized that during these times, as people were often coming together, and that's often so powerful. Yeah. So, Professor Morris, we'd like to give you our warmest welcome to Different Boat, Same, um, Same Storm, a podcast aimed at kindling empathy amidst the global pandemic. Yeah. Empathy, we recognize, is so important during these times. So, so honored to have you on the show. Uh, my name is Abe. And my name is Atar Bakabal. And um, it would be very nice if you could possibly introduce yourselves to our audience members. 
Okay, hello, I'm uh, Al Moritz, uh, Professor A.F. Moritz, A.F. Moritz, that's uh, my uh, nom de guerre, my nom de plume, that's how I sound, sign my writing, and I'm a well-known poet and writer, and uh, I'm a professor at the University of Toronto. I'm the um, uh, Blake C. Goldring, a professor of the Arts and Society. Um, at Victoria College in the University of Toronto. And at the moment, I'm serving as the Poet Laureate of the City of Toronto. I'm the sixth poet to um, serve in that, uh, that capacity. And I'm gonna put my earphones in so I can hear a little more clearly, okay? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and I find that when you're home all the time, I'm always having these like tactics. Even right now, I'm looking at my camera right here and it's another one, it's not working. It's yeah. like we've been connected in a completely different way. That yeah. I mean, we were already doing this, but it's been expedited so much. Yeah. Yeah, you're talking about now in you're talking about now in the uh, in the COVID era. Yeah, well, you know, when I say technology. I do not mean uh, to go back and live in trees <laughs> or whatever people did before there was any technology, if there was ever a time before there's any technology. You just, sure. think to, you just think to yourself, uh, you know, when humans became humans, whenever that was, however it happened, Adam and Eve, or one day you were a monkey and the next day you weren't, I don't know. But it, whatever humans uh, became uh, uh, humans, there was technology. Everything you think of, you usually think about things like poetry or something like that and say, that must have been there from the beginning, right? You don't know, you can't go back in a time machine, but you're just figuring that must have been there from the beginning. But when you start about thinking about every major thing people are interested in, making a living, getting from one place to another, all of it must have been there from the beginning, not in the highly uh, separated and and intellectualized ways we've produced, but still, in embryo, it all must have been there from the beginning. There was never a time without technology. There's nothing wrong with technology just defined as tools that you use to do what you need in a healthful, helpful way. Um, the problem is the tools running away from you. So when I say technology, I'm using a shorthand, right? Um, in order to speak to especially uh, English speakers, you have to say technology. But I'd rather use Jacques Ellul, the great uh, sociologist term technique. He talks about technique. Technology is certain application of technique. Technique is more an idea. And even technique as an idea could be innocent. But since about, since intellectually about 1750, and since effectively about the time of World War II, technique has been this culture of applying to everything as the best thing to do with it, rationalized, breaking it down and reassembling it for ultimate technique for ultimate uh, efficiency and power achievable according to the methods available at the period, right? And then as we develop a new technique, 
uh, technology, we break it down again because now there are new possibilities. Maybe it can be done still more powerfully. So, you know, people were amazed at the fighter plane that you can build in 1945. But of course, we're much more amazed at the fighter plane that you can build in 2020, you know, but it's the same kind of thing. Um, and it gives the whole world really the, the social form of an arms race. Everything. I, I'm very intrigued by this concept that you brought about um, where you distinguish between technology and technique um, mm -hmm. and how that is, how the ultimate aim of either of these is, you know, just to um, maximize human potential in mm -hmm. times of distress and make the most of resources and circumstances one is in. Um, yeah. especially in times like right now, uh, where we're in unprecedented times. Um, and it's hard to really know, um, how to go about things by looking back at history. Um, mm -hmm. especially for a professional like yours, which is so dependent on, you know, human interaction and engagement. Um, how are you adjusting to that change? Um, and how do you feel that, um, it has impacted your work, if at all? Yes, that's a great question, and it's not something that I can answer real simply, because it's a constant adjustment, and um, you find again and again a new circumstance in which it affects you a little differently, you know. Um, but, uh, yeah, I must say, I certainly uh, regret the loss of, of human contact and the just the ability to go places and, and do normal things. Um, uh, you know, there's the, the, the idea of meeting students, but there's just the idea of traveling somewhere because it's summer to, I don't know, to go to a national forest and have a walk or enjoy nature. There's the fact that um, uh, the way the modern uh, publishing industry works, the um, book launching season for poetry books is in the spring, in April and May. And I had a new book come out this, um, this uh, um, April, and all the events that were planned for it, I was going to travel to various cities and give readings, my publisher had arranged all that, and many events were arranged here in town and so on. Um, they've all been canceled. Um, people were even hoping to, who who are interested in my work or even hoping to have some private backyard parties to to replace the missing launches in july and august and now with the progress of the thing we can't even do that so those were tentatively arranged and then canceled so yeah i experienced that there is a lot that is lost you know it's a funny thing just think back to the um think back you can't think back but consider the uh, Spanish flu, the influenza, the great um, uh, plague of 1918, and then, though people don't realize this, it kept unrolling um, the next five, six or more years. There would be outbreaks of it every fall. In fact, my grandfather died young of it in 1922. Oh, wow. yeah, this is a time that is... Uh, before any antibiotics, right? There wasn't even penicillin until the 1930s. So if you got something that was pneumonia-like or, uh, or advanced to pneumonia, you were quite likely to die. 
Um, so, uh, so none of the possibilities through technology that we have um, right now to meet like we are meeting um, existed in those days. What existed? Uh, the, um, nobody could even use a radio, really, um, to telephone. That was it, right? Um, telegraph. So it's those things are great, fantastic advances in our day, but they don't in any way provide what the internet and telecom does to us today. So to me, this is a perfect example of something that's a real blessing if it's used right. And I've enjoyed Zoom meetings, uh, being able to FaceTime sort of as we're doing today uh, on various platforms, um, uh, you know, uh, with people. And it's true what so many have noticed, it's not entirely a replacement. It's not the same thing. It's not the same. But it is, it is something, and you've got to be grateful for it. And I think a lot of people are using it well. You know, I was given a severe analysis the other day, uh, a, a, a moment ago, but I, I don't think no one is doing what I'm asking for, or I don't think I'm the only person in the world who knows it. I just, I do think it's important to get the helm of our society around much more in that direction. But um, if you think what medical workers, and for instance, are doing right now, you know, it's interesting. We often say the science of medicine, and we often say the art of medicine. That's one of those, those sectors which really comes to the fore in this plague, and which really is a, a a sector for unity, and at the same time, unfortunately, sometimes a battleground between art and science. But um, again and again, you see science to dom uh, medicine too dominated by a scientific outlook, as opposed to using the tools of science according to a holistic general culture. But my experience of people in medicine is that by far the most of them are very personal and they try and try. Although the machinery and the schedules, the whole technological infrastructure makes them treat you, just forces them to treat you like a piece on an assembly line. Nonetheless, when they are with you or in any way they can, they treat you humanly. And to me, that's something very heroic, and it really represents the struggle that we're in, the contradiction that we're in. And it also enables me to bring out that what technique shows us is that technology is not machines. Machines are a extremely vivid element and symbol of technology, so it's, it, it's good that we, it's natural that we mistake machines for technology, 
But no, no, no. Today there are athletic technologies, there are educational technologies. You're told how to study according to efficient patterns. You're never allowed um, to develop your own methods. And in fact, if you study well, you're somebody who maybe even without knowing it, uh, ignores or only adapts and changes all the things you're told about how study is done because you develop a personal method you have that inner strength but there's military technologies there's organizational technologies and all bureaucracies the format in all bureaucracies corporations hospitals and governments those are forms of technology those are rationalized breaking down and reassembling of natural human communications for the purpose of power into which the person then has to fit and whatever he claims to believe he is forced in the modern world to spend almost all his good time in enacting the morality we could almost call it of technology despite what he may himself wish to do or claim to believe so what i'm hearing is technology ought to be used as a tool rather than the ends it, and, it ought to be only a tool. That's right. Absolutely. That's and, right. And when we look at medicine, like you mentioned, there is that whole part of medicine that perhaps is even being forgotten during this pandemic as, you know, thousands of people rush into hospitals and as our healthcare systems begin to be overwhelmed. Yeah. So, you know, you mentioned your, um, how the healthcare system is adapting, how technology is continuously changing. How have you been adapting? During this pandemic, you mentioned that many of your events were canceled. And, you know, first of all, how does that feel? Because I know for Tarbanai's students, when university <laughs> was canceled, yeah, coming back home within a span of a week, it was. It was I like, know, you know, uh, you know, uh, Eli can tell you. Um, we were down there having our class. The class that he has with me was at, it used to run 11 a.m. to 1 p.m on Friday, right? So Friday the end of the week. So uh, we arrived at school and we heard after at 5 p.m. today, the U of T is closed, right? Yeah, before, until that moment, we were going on happily. So us, us, our small little group was meeting in our seminar room and saying, well, hi and bye, everybody. <laughs> it's kind of crazy, you know. We're going to discuss this novel by Don DeLillo. <laughs> 1 p.m. comes, we're scattered to the, the winds, right? You know, very weird. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I didn't like it at all. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, you know, it was it was nice uh, uh, then, uh, sort of fun, adapting with the kids uh, via email and, and Zoom and so on, what we would do. You know, we, we had, the university is now giving us methods that we're supposed to be using in the fall. But us, we had to hash together you know, as, as, as courses, as teacher and students, we had to come up with the ways we would do it. We kept saying, okay, we could do this. Oh yeah, we'd agree to that and so on. And it worked out fine. Um, and, and it was even sort of fun. It was work intensive though, right? There were about three, four weeks of class, three weeks, I believe, of classes left. And suddenly you had to figure out how to deliver those last three weeks or how to meet for those last three weeks of classes. And then 
do all the marking and give people all the feedback and everything you do by, uh, you know, returning essays in class and saying, now do you want to talk to me? You want to come over to my office afterwards and do it privately or whatever? You had to do all of that, um, you know, online. And it was, in, it was tough. It was work intensive too, right? Usually a professor's job, you know, a professor's job like a journalist or maybe people in other kind of rhythmic employment and business and the professions um, comes and goes. Like when you're starting a, a term, you're kind of relaxed. Then it gets more work heavy towards the end. And the U of T's kind of schedule, by about the time you get to the end of reading week or the last week of February or something like that, right through to about April 15th, you're really working 24 seven. You know, you're really working 15, 16 hours a day, every day a week uh, because of all the assignments that are coming in. And then towards the end, especially needing to get the marks in by the marks deadline. So that lasts, you know, two weeks or so after the official end of classes, the, the needing to redo uh, how to deliver things caused that to extend another two, three weeks. So I was really, really busy right till the first week of May, right? So that was one negative effect. But I can't claim it didn't have sort of some fun in it, right, you know? But um, yeah, I'm eager for it to be over. I'm talking and talking, but one of the things I'd like to say about this subject is that um, when you go back to medicine, I think you see many doctors, at least on the expert level, the commentator level, or the level of, um, of, of senior public health officials who have to appear on television and online and so forth, um, you see them adopting a very human and holistic approach. Uh, because like many scientists, you scratch the surface and they have a great sense of the humility of science, of how little it can actually do. And their noses are kind of rubbed in this right now. In labs someplace, the, the most talented and equipped researchers are scrambling to create vaccines, which let us hope they can do. We don't know for sure if a vaccine will even be possible for this particular illness. But in the meantime, there is very little we can do except care for each other and be careful. And so they're almost like your, your priest or, you know, whatever, talking to you from the altar. What they have to say to you is, uh, is a, a moral message combined with the idea that these relatively simple methods developed in public health over the last 100 or 150 years are what we have to offer you. It sends you back to the history of medicine and makes you emphasize some of the surprising things. Like we, we emphasize high-tech medicine, but um, at around 1930, the average life expectancy was about 58. Now it's about 78. And of those 20 years that have been added, 
only two or three are due to high-tech medicine. The rest are all due to improvements in public health and, and diet. So, you know, common sense things and things that have to do with general development and welfare, a general raising of the standard of living assisted by science. Because we can say, you know, the famous Eisenhower diet that gave every, the 50s diet that gave everybody heart attacks was compared to previous diets, an excellent diet. But since then, science has analyzed the components of the foods better and taught us, you know, things like relative avoidance of red meat and so forth, right? So it's yeah. not that there's no science in public health, of course yeah. not, you know, but but it's a relatively simpler science, you know. Absolutely. Um, I was, when you said that, the reference that you made about almost being at the altar when you are, mm -hmm. um, interacting with public health officials and talk to us because uh, there is this humility um, that has been brought about and amplified uh, by this pandemic. Um, it makes you wonder what really the future holds, uh, given the uncertainty that we have in these times. And um, as we've discovered the limits of um, our resources, our techniques and our technology. Um, yeah. And it's, 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 it's frustrating and it's, it's tough and it's confusing. And I, I personally struggle with um, dealing with that milieu of emotions. Yeah. Um, and I can only imagine what it's like uh, uh, for somebody whose work and everything was so dependent um, on those kinds of human interactions and engagements. Um, so hopes for the future. Um, it's a very interesting term because hope itself is so hard to find nowadays. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, you know, I feel as if um, people are, uh, let me use an example that you'll be very familiar with. In the aftermath of the murder of George Floyd, you've seen doubtless either online or on television or in the newspapers, um, uh, many interviews with family members and lawyers who are uh, belong to uh, black men who have been killed by the police. And they're, set, and they're asked, like Floyd's family is asked, his lawyer is asked and so on, do you hope that this will really bring about change. And they'll usually say, yes, I do hope so. Or they will say, I don't know if I can hope, but I certainly wish that it would happen, right? Uh, they're usually asked, are you confident? And they say, no, I can't be confident given the past and that we just don't know what happened, will happen, but I can hope that we do. So that's a kind of a, a definition of hope. We can see that we learned something and we hope that um, uh, we will implement that learning and that we can hold ourselves to implementing that learning. We do have that power and that possibility. And if we hold ourselves to implementing 
the lesson learned, we will achieve improvements. There's no doubt about that. But we have to really always understand that the whole idea of progress, if we, say, we critique the idea of progress, like technology is our problem, isn't that prog progress? But in another sense, the idea of progress is obvious. You want tomorrow to be better than today. Um, and so we want to have uh, a progress, but we have to realize it doesn't come about automatically. If we don't work and struggle and keep on the right path, progress in the moral sense, in the human sense, won't happen. And if we don't control what's happening, then anything that seems like progress will be the runaway train of technology, which takes us in all kinds of directions, many of which are very bad. So we have to control what we're doing. So do I have hope coming out of this pandemic? Um, I'm really not sure. I have hope in the sense that I know we could make progress, but in the greater sense, um, like, uh, you know, uh, hope is the, is, the, is the substance of things believed in. It's already the prophetic accomplishment of what could be, because what could be is what is true in essence now and always. Do I have that St. Paul, you know, do I have that kind of hope? Uh, probably not. But I'd say certain things are really, really evident to me. Like, for instance, we had three weeks of sustained American and international protests after the murder of Mr. Floyd. That is really great. But it's probably possible largely because of the pandemic. If people weren't isolated in their houses, they would not have time or energy for this. They would not be watching television or online news as much and they wouldn't know as much about it. Uh, in other words, the whole technological system that I just outlined to you would be operating as it does operate to keep citizens politically inert and keep them in the, the path of productive technique. So we know from what happened to Mr. Floyd, as we should have known already from what happened to Freddie Gray in 2015 in Baltimore and so on, I could name you I've been interested in this all my life. I could literally name you 50, so I won't you know, bother with that. But um, um, each time, it, the same thing has been evident, and it hasn't been accomplished. Some improvements have been made, but it hasn't been anywhere near accomplished. So will it now be? I, I really hope so. But when everything speeds back up and returns to normal, will we able to be, keep concentration on this? Now, let me just say one thing that seems perfectly evident to me from, the, from COVID itself, not as applied to any particular uh, minority community, but as, a, as applied to everyone. Um, the idea of the essential worker it really has thrown light on the essential worker. Now, will the essential worker be treated as essential? Or after COVID-19, 
will we still be seeing newspaper stories about poor cafeteria workers and big corporations striking to make something like a living wage and being locked out by IBM or Apple or whatever? I will say, you know, what I've said completely outside of um, any pandemic or anything all my adult life or even back into adolescence. Those people, um, drivers, store shelf stalkers, hospital orderlies, food service workers, we should be absolutely requiring that they make the same salary as the most workaholic lawyer in the biggest corporate law firm now makes. Every one of them should get an equal salary and equal benefits to that. All of those people should have a sufficient income, sufficient defined as being to, able to have comfortably a family of three or four kids send them to university and still have uh, no, no punishing debt and the ability mm -hmm. to take an occasional vacation or go out to the opera or the movies or whatever the hell it may be that you like. So is that going to be done? Right? That's yeah. a lesson that is clear. Um, but you see the conservative so-called side of the of the of our spectrum already adjusting as as soon as they had to pass socialistic like they like to call it type measures they immediately said that's for now this crisis but not for the future but what this crisis shows is that the so-called socialistic form of economy is the right one you know i don't you know have any brief for calling it socialist. It's just a, a matter of apportioning income, uh, apportioning wealth as it ought to be apportioned. I don't know if there's enough money in existence to do what I'm saying, mm. but I do know that the money that does exist could and must be distributed evenly. Um, and according to the importance of jobs. And a, uh, a store shelf stalker is arguably more important than a, a bank deputy manager, right? So I, um, I think we should recognize this. And as long as our society is a money equals rewards and prestige society, those people, field workers and so forth, should get $300,000 a year. Mm. And um, that's just the way it is. I, I feel as if um, there were a rejigging of the whole corporate structure, not to change it to socialism, but just to create the sense that a 10% profit plus inflation each year is what you should get in your company and any more than that is sinful and criminal and should be prevented would cause the money to have to flow. I think that people who have been able to 
hoard money should be forced to circulate it. Mm. We should not be able, for instance, you maybe should get rid of things like inheritance. Any money that you uh, have should have to go back into circulation so that the only th way you could give your, your, your children a great education is to provide a great education for everyone. The only way you could give your children a really wonderful, green, uh, uh, beautiful park-like place to live in was that everyone had a wonderful, green, park-like place to live in. So I would like to see changes like that. They seem mm. to me to be obvious, logical uh, uh, um, deductions from or lessons of this crisis. But do I have real hope that we will learn it? Probably not. Mm. And these are all such interesting concepts. And I think the central tenet of what you're talking about is that we ought to care for one another. And it's something that we has resonated throughout this entire conversation. Yeah, yeah. As a society, it, it, caring for one another matters and how we do that, that's the ultimate question moving forward. You've mentioned that medicine and progress is all artwork. Yeah. And yeah. as a poet yourself, yeah. Um, I mean, Eli mentioned to us actually that you are quite a singer as well. We were wondering, <laughs> oh, yeah. we, we are wondering now, as we wrap things up, you, you know, you mentioned how doctors are now, you know, the priests at the altar. Could you share a few hymns with us now? A hymn? I don't want to share a hymn. How about, um, how about a ballad? Yeah, I mean, All right. Where are you? Where did you go without me? I thought you cared about me. Where are you? Where's my heart? Where is the dream we started? I can't believe we're parted. Where are you? When we said goodbye, love, what had we to gain? When I gave you my love, was it all in vain? All life through, must I go on pretending? Where is my happy ending? Where are you? Where are you? Wow. Okay, we have to clap for that. <laughs> that was, that was mind-blowing, sir. Um, and, I mean, you're a poet, and you're a philosopher, and you're a singer? You're, yes, you're the entire package. And a revolutionary. <laughs> and a revolutionary. Oh, yeah. I, I have to hold up, hold up my phone to this camera. Mm -hmm. So that the people can see, I've got it in the anarchist colors, red and black. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Wow. So let me repeat them. Um, poet, philosopher, singer, revolutionary. That's anarchist, right. question mark? Anarchist, yeah. Yeah, my politics would be basically anarchist. Uh, you know, I'm not a good anarchist. I'm a more theoretical anarchist. <laughs> but, uh, but I love anarchism, you know, the, wow. the, the philosophy. Well, you guys are sort of in political philosophy. My joke is always this. 
there's political science fine. Political science is the study of the way people have arranged society, and there's millions of them, so that's a great study. Political philosophy, there's only one political philosophy, because that's the study of how people should uh, arrange themselves, and that's anarchism. And that's, that's quite profound, actually. Wow. <laughs> I wish they taught that, taught that to us in political science instead. Be yeah, a lot right. better off. <laughs> well, um, Speaking of anarchy, I feel like <laughs> uh, we might as well let anarchy set in into yeah. this conversation as well. And um, yeah. have Eli join us, who's been in the shadows so far. Um, okay. Eli. <laughs> that was a fantastic introduction. That's the best introduction I've had. <laughs> Welcome, anarchy. Welcome, yeah, the personification of anarchy to the that's chat. Right, yeah. Professor, thank you. That, that was wonderful. I, I, was, I was dying when you were singing. That was <laughs> Oh, that oh, that's good. Well, I've got a million of them. I know probably at least two or three hundred songs. <laughs> oh, my. We have to set up a separate Zoom call just to have this. My, my repertoire? <laughs> okay. We well, need you to sing our, our intro for our podcast. Okay, good. Well, you, yes. you write a theme song and I'll do, I'll do the music. <laughs> okay. Oh, we'll do that. Okay. <laughs> that's we, our next project. I gotcha. We do have to wrap up, but I, I did. I just yeah. want to get your your opinion on one thing. So yeah. I, I was born in Singapore, and you were yeah. when you were mentioning about the the essential worker and the artist. Mm -hmm. I found this interesting. So the Sunday Times, uh, which is a newspaper in Singapore, posted a poll of I think they purported to have about seventy percent response rate from their citizens mm. about what were the top five essential jobs in Singapore and the top mm -hmm. five non-essential jobs in Singapore in the time of the of the pandemic. Yeah. And so the top five, and I mean, Singapore is a very practical place, so this didn't surprise mm -hmm. many people, but the top five were doctor, uh, you know, cleaner, um, hawker worker, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And the top, the number one non-essential job was artist. Mm -hmm. so I'm, and, and that, you know, I think for a lot of the artists um, in Singapore and internationally who saw this, it was kind of a blow to our self-esteem because I think artists have to already are on this uphill climb towards mm -hmm. raised eyebrows and skepticism that you're constantly greeted with. And so I, I, I do have to just quickly get your, your thoughts on artists in the time, specifically in the time of a pandemic being non-essential. Yeah, well, that's probably, to me, it's a misconception. Um, you know, uh, people think of necessity just in terms of uh, things you have to do that are defined like basically along the lines of making a living. Well, everybody has to make a living, and um, artists often can't make a living from their art. So just like everybody else, they're working jobs and they're often working two or three jobs because they're working at a job to make a living and they're being useful in society that way. And at the same time, they're trying to find a way to do their art. Um, but the, the other kind of necessity is the things that human beings just naturally do in order to be human. And that's music and poetry and art in the sense of painting or filmmaking or things like that belong in that category, wherever there's human beings, those things have to hit. Even when you're pinned down in the trenches and people are killed all around you, you're writing little poems and prayers, or you're remembering the ones you said in school, and so on, or you're draw drawing things on a stone. 
Um, so this is necessary in the sense that breathing is necessary. It happens if you're a human being. It's the breathing of the spirit, you might say, the breathing of the particularly human, non, not totally bodily side of the human being. So, and I, so I think that it, that's a twofold mistake, right? Um, uh, it's a mistake because it doesn't recognize the real necessity. And it's a mistake because it takes artists as people who are only doing their art and are not contributing to society by being um, a warehouse worker or a, uh, you know, um, or a doctor. You know, William Carlos Williams, the great poet, was a doctor. Many another poet has done these kind of so-called Joe jobs in order to get by um, while, you know, being an being an uh, an author or a, a painter or something like that. So um, the artist works just as hard, if not harder, than anybody else. So, you know. Yeah, well, that's a great message. That's a great yeah. message for the artists out here, myself included. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> well, thank you. Yeah, I, I think that um, uh, people like to think they would just get by. But, you know, just the moment you only were allowed to eat what, what would keep you alive, and therefore there were no markets with brilliant, beautiful vegetables piled out in front of them, immediately the aesthetic interest of society would go way down and you would have a depressed society as you did behind the uh, Iron Curtain in the time of the Soviet hegemony. And um, the same with arts. You know, it may be we had brilliant cultures before there were movies, but we're a movie culture and we, we're used to movies. We make movies as part of what we are. Well, imagine a, a society without movies, right? So you can't go out to the movies. Like if you're old fashioned like me, you like getting in the theater and having the big screen and so forth. But just imagine if there were no movies, if you, you could not turn on Netflix today, would people then really be saying, well, okay, um, there's nothing on the screen because uh, artists are unnecessary. And so everybody is just telling them to go plant potatoes and uh, no movies are being made. Now, I don't think so, right? Uh, uh, at best, they'd be watching the old issues of Star Trek or something like that. And, you know, uh, doing what people, alas, so often do, just say, I'm not going to pay for what I need now, I'm going to find some way around it to get it free, and I'm going to minimize the person who um, uh, gives of his soul to provide these things. Yeah. Right. The the comedian there was a comedian in Singapore who responded to this poll saying, "If that's true that artists are the number one non-essential job, then I challenge you to delete Netflix, cancel Spotify." Throw your TV out of a window. Yeah, not burn, show and I, yeah, right. Burn all your books. Um, <laughs> yeah. Reduce all advertisements to just the name of the product. And <laughs> yeah. where you can get yeah. it. No, no skits, no paintings, right? No animations on any advertisement and so on. All store signs to be nothing but the name of the business in black and white and so forth. <laughs> yeah. No, no, uh, no show windows, right? Uh, 
clothes just designed like a nun's outfit or something like that. Yeah. They all have to be identical, right? Uh, every every spoon and fork is just one standard issue spoon and fork. Every one of those things is art and design. So just yeah. get rid of the artists and see what you've got left, right? You know. Yeah, art is necessary, and yeah. we need this level of humanism and progress to move forward. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, it's been great to talk with you guys. Now, before we quit, uh, I've been recording this, right? And I need to know how to email or whatever I do your, my mm -hmm. recording to you. Maybe you've got a Dropbox or something. I don't know. Will you send this, send me the the information in, yeah. in, in email? I'll right, do that. Something, something maybe I can just respond to and attach yeah. it. Okay. Perfect. Perfect. Uh, okay. Great. All right. Okay. Okay. okay good. Yeah. Okay, guys. Good. Okay. Thank good. you so, so so much for taking the time out to do this. You have no idea how grateful yeah. we are. And well, just. Sorry, you were saying. No, I just say I thank you too, Atharv. It was just really fun. And I hope that we will, Atharv and Ave, be able to meet in person. Uh, Absolutely. Uh, in the fall, yeah. We should set up a meeting, honestly, a post-interview um, debrief, to say the least. Should they do some karaoke or something? Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Some karaoke. Absolutely. Well, maybe you guys, uh, I asked Eli maybe to come to the Jewison stream course that I mm -hmm. teach, which, you, you know, you guys, might, I don't know if you know what that is or not, but anyway, we can tell you. So I asked Eli to come and talk about his film, uh, or filmmaking in general a bit. You know, maybe all three of us could just get up in that class one day and and mm -hmm. sort of have a panel discussion and then invite the students uh than to participate, right? You know, something like something. that would be like, yeah. very interesting. Right? I would love that. Yeah. That would be amazing. Well, I'm always looking for things that involve people and um, are something different from me just rattling on. Although, because my rattling <laughs> on is of supreme interest. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> especially, especially to me. <laughs> but, uh, but, um, but I uh, do look for variety. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, maybe we should hang up, guys. Well, uh, this has been great. Okay. Absolutely. Okay. Okay. Great Thanks to see you. Thanks so much. Okay. Have a great day. Take care. Bye. Thank you. Bye-bye.